This is uh, Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Um, and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with uh, Dr. Mary Leteo, who is um, Fellowship Director in Gynecology Service and Director of Minimal Access and Robotic Surgery Program in the Department of Surgery at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Welcome, Mario. Oh, thank you. Good morning, Pedro. So, Mario, the topic uh, we wanted to discuss, obviously, is one of uh, significant relevance to G1 oncology, and uh, and certainly there's been a, a, a number of uh, publications recently that I, I wanted to to highlight and um, and and share with our audience. So, one of the first things that I wanted to cover is uh, for you to share with us some of the background details regarding lower extremity. Uh, lymphedema, and particularly focusing on, on how frequent this is, and if you can expand on the differences between what is known as primary and secondary lymphedema. Sure. So, you know, our understanding of lower extremity lymphedema is uh, just evolving, if you will. I mean, we really never pay attention to this as being a problem for our patients, but now we realize that it is. Um, and the frequencies of lymphedema uh, in our patients varies tremendously from as low as 2%, which is extremely low and inaccurate, to as high as in some series, 70%. Um, and then, you know, there's primary and secondary lymphedema uh, are two types of lymphedema. Primary is exceedingly rare. Uh, that's really sort of a, a, an acquired or, or congenital innate defect in the lymphatic system, which usually leads to either hypoplasia, aplasia, or even hyperplasia of the lymphatic system, uh, either the channels and or lymph nodes, that then leads to lymphedema. This is usually an earlier uh, age of onset, um, but it's very, it's very rare. There's some genetic syndromes that are associated with this also. Secondary lymphedema is the most common form of lymphedema, which is what we deal with in G1 oncology, and that's usually lymphedema that's caused by other things, such as cancer itself, cancer treatments itself, for what we do in G1 oncology, but also infections can, can lead to lymphedema, uh, surgeries, obesity, trauma, uh, radiation therapy. So there's many things that can cause secondary lymphedema, which is the most common form of lymphedema that uh, is, is develops in the world and is the most common that we would deal with in GI oncology. And you mentioned that obviously this is uh, quite devastating to a number of our patients who actually do develop it. And, and I agree with you. It's something that when we're discussing, you know, during our preoperative visit with a patient, is it's not something that we particularly focus on. But if it does happen, this is uh, this is particularly burdensome to to patients. So, tell us a little bit about you know the limitations on daily activities and and even the financial burden to to these patients. Yeah, you know, now that we've been, I've been doing this for a few years and really seeing my own patients who've developed this over the years, it really is a tremendous problem for, for our ladies that when it happens. Some studies have shown that in terms of financial burden, nearly a quarter of patients experience some form of financial burden, and that's for many different reasons. One, from the cost of treatment, which sometimes may not be covered by insurances, but also by loss of wages from, uh, you know, not being able to go to work when they have really bad lymphedema that limits their mobility. You know, the lymphedema also has varying degrees uh, of severity, uh, from very mild to no big deal to, you know, the more extreme cases where you can get really debilitating pain. Uh, you can't wear, uh, you can't wear the same size shoes. You can't wear the right clothing. It's difficult to stand for prolonged amounts of times. And so, you know, some studies have shown that, um, when we develop lymphedema, nearly half of them might actually have significant impact on our daily activities. 
And, and Mary, one of the things you mentioned, uh, and, and I agree with you, is that when we read the literature on lower extremity lymphedema, um, you know, you mentioned there's a wide range in terms of how frequent this is, and, and you know, often find it difficult when answering the, the question to our patients as to, you know, what's the rate of lymphedema. Uh, why, why are the rates reported so different when we look at retrospective studies compared to some of the prospective data? Well, the main problem of uh, assessing lymphedema rates is that no one really knows how to properly measure it. I think we're getting a better understanding of some of the recent publications, including ours, but it really has been primarily an issue of how we measure and assess it. And when you look at retrospective versus prospective, it's true of any comparison between retrospective and prospective studies. Looking at retrospective studies, you're looking through medical records, which we have notoriously been bad at asking patients about lymphedema. And often we don't even ask them in a proper way. If we get to ask them, we ask, are your legs swollen? Or do we see some sort of swelling? And that's the problem in the medical records when we do retrospective studies, that there really has been no objective, reliable way that we've asked our patients routinely in a clinical fashion. So then you do a retrospective study, pulling from the chart, whatever information was happened to be written in there, and, and, and therefore you highly underestimate the lymphedema. Even within prospect, and then prospective studies, if they're done correctly, you, you, people try to incorporate some uh, more objective form of assessing lymphedema, but the problem also comes with there's various ways of doing it, quote-unquote, objectively, um, and those vary um, also in how they detect lymphedema. And then there's also patient-reported outcomes, which don't always correlate with objective measurements, and often, actually, patient-reported symptoms of lymphedema may precede the actual objective uh, assessment and, de and, and, and determination of lymphedema. So it really is an evolving field um, and quite difficult to ascertain. Additionally, patients, as they age, develop lymphedema for other reasons. So then it becomes you know, a bigger challenge to, to assess whether lymphedema is related to what we did to them or is it just something that's happening for other medical reasons. Yeah, that's a very good point. And, uh, and Mary, one of the other things I wanted to ask you is that, um, you know, obviously we, we always kind of correlate lymphedema with lymphadenectomy. So tell us a little bit more about like the, like the pathophysiology of lymphedema. Like how does this develop? How, how does it happen? Yeah, so, I mean, really it's just a, a sort of a iatrogenic interruption of the normal lymphatic system is the basic underlying pathophysiology. But then what happens there is that in some patients, not all, obviously, um, this interruption of the normal uh, uh, lymphatic anatomy leads to the basic buildup of, of really just stagnant, protein-rich extracellular fluid in the extremities. And, and that's what really starts the whole cascade. This fluid normally would be taken up by the lymphatic system, cleared by the lymphatic system, filtered through the lymph nodes, where actually antigens are presented uh, to help prevent infections. And with this buildup of stagnant protein in the extremities, it, it starts to decrease the normal oxygen and um, uh, nutrient transport to the tissues surrounding it, which then leads to start this whole vicious cycle. Uh, you have a change in the pressures in the extremity within the interstitium. This then starts to lead to some cell death and inflammation. You have CD4 infiltration. You get fibroblasts and smooth muscle proliferation. And then finally, you get really just damaged out of post-deposition, which is really the later stages of lymphedema and, and almost impossible to really treat. Um, in addition to this, from all these changes, you get impaired skin elasticity and integrity, and then you start to see the secondary ulcers and fissures on the legs, and you get the, and then on top of that, the, it, there's impaired wound healing from all these changes, so you get a fissure and ulcer, it, it won't heal, and then they get infected, 
Uh, because of the impaired lymphatic system, you don't get proper antigen presentation to then fight these infections, and you have chronic cellulitis. It's just, and then you get infections, you get ulcers, it further worsens lymphedema. It's just, once it starts, it becomes this vicious cycle um, of, of a worsening process that once it gets to the later stages, is really almost untreatable. Right. And, and Mara, somebody obviously listening to this and, uh, and reading your, your upcoming review in, uh, in the International Journal, um, which, by the way, I have to congratulate you. It's an, it's an excellent review. You know, in, in reading this and listening to, to, to this discussion, they can say, all right, well, how do I go into my practice tomorrow and evaluate a patient appropriately when I'm suspecting a, a risk of lymphedema? Uh, what's the gold standard? What do I do tomorrow? Uh, for measuring lymphedema, you mean? Right. Yeah, you know, it's there's a lot of different methods out there. I mean, the gold standard, quote-unquote, would be what, what we call water volumetri volumetrics, where you basically look at water displacement in a big container, uh, and there's uh, criteria and cutoffs for what is considered presence of lymphedema. That obviously is not clinically useful because we can't put our patients in water baths Right. To assess their lymphedema. So there's a lot of other methods out there, and there's those, uh, the objective measurement methods. And then there's also, very importantly, I think we have to consider more often patient-reported measures. Um, a very common and more clinically practical way of assessing lymphedema is for um, leg measurements, volumetric uh, leg measurements. Um, and there's various methods out there and calculations where you measure the leg on a jobs board, and every 10 centimeters up you do a, a measurement of the leg, and then you compare it to the other leg, and if there's a, a difference between the two of about 10%, then you can say that there's a lymphedema. Uh, and that's, uh, in terms of the tools needed, is inexpensive and can be done, but <laughs> there's two problems with that. One is you need a normal contralateral leg, and many times our patients have bilateral lymphedema. Mm -hmm. so they might have the same measurement, and you say they don't have lymphedema. Um, right. And two, it's actually sometimes not so reproducible between folks who are doing measurements. Um, it can vary also, and that was seen in a recent GOG study that, you know, uh, the measurements, even despite folks who are trained to do the measurements, still vary uh, in various ways. So, so that's one, um, one method that's, uh, let's say, low cost but has its own problems. Another method, and there's other methods, but another one that's actually, uh, there's, commercial products for it is to do a bioimpedance assessment. Um, and our plastic surgeons actually have that in their office. Um, and, and then what that does is it, 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 the basis, basic premise is that folks who have lymphedema will have a higher water content and lower tissue resistance. And so these bioimpedance measurements, which actually you just put, you know, you put your feet on, your hands on, it can measure uh, bioimpedance, actually can tell you sort of what the water content down, and then there's uh, correlations with uh, the presence of lymphedema or not. And that is actually commercially available. And like I said, our plastic surgeons actually have a few of those machines in their office um, since they deal with uh, a lot of the lymphedema management and detection. And, and you mentioned uh, a GOG study. I believe you're referring to GOG protocol 244. Um, I think this is a, a prospective evaluation on, on lymphedema that was recently published. Can you just uh, briefly tell us about that and what they found? Yeah, so GOG 244 um, was a prospective study carried out by the GOG uh, cooperative group. Um, it's also known as the LEG study. Um, so that was um, the first ever attempt at prospectively assessing what the rate of lymphedema is in our women with GYN cancers undergoing lymphadenectomy. So uh, patients were enrolled 
who were planned to have surgery for either uterine, cervical, or vulvar cancers. Um, they all had to undergo a lymphadenectomy. So the, this study does not assess the impact of no lymphadenectomy. It's just a uh, single arm. Everybody had a, a lymphadenectomy. Um, the, the basic, uh, uh, the primary out, 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 uh, objective and outcome was to assess the rate of lymphedema uh, prospectively, so the incidence. And so uh, patients had volumetric leg assessments with using the JOPS board uh, with sequential leg measurements comparing to the contralateral leg. And these were done at baseline. And then every six, uh, I believe every six months for up to two years. Um, and really what they were looking at was a change of greater than or equal to 10% from baseline as the cutoff metric for uh, uh, diagnosing lymphedema. In addition, at the same time to doing uh, objective leg measurements, they used a patient-reported tool, which was really a modification of the breast cancer lymphedema questionnaire, which they now call the gynecologic cancer lymphedema questionnaire, the GCLQ. Um, and that is a, a validated patient-reported outcome tool, and they, they did both. Uh, in these patients to uh, try to assess for the first time ever prospectively what the rate of lymphedema was. So the five, these, this was just recently published, the results from this. They, were, they had been presented a few years ago at the SGO meeting also. And, you know, the rate of lymphedema uh, varied slightly between the cancers, but were not so different. Uh, for, the, for cervix and endometrial cancer, about 35% of women, and, you know, don't pull me on those numbers. I'd have to look exactly. About 35% of women with cervix and endometrial cancer undergoing lymphadenectomy had a change of greater than 10% from baseline on objective measurements. And then also in vulvar cancer was a, a little bit higher, which we expect, of, and that was about 45%. The patient-reported outcomes also were able to detect lymphedema, but there wasn't a, as great a correlation as you would think with the objective measurements. So really, this study now for the first time validates many of the retrospective studies that show that the rate of lymphedema is a lot higher than single digits, um, and it's a real problem. In, 30 to 40 percent of our patients at least and it's something we need to think about and really what this study sets the, the, the basis and the framework for future studies to better assess how we can one measure lymphedema and it probably needs to be a combination of objective and patient reported outcomes and then also hopefully we can start to learn when this lymphedema occurs when we can intervene and and how much sooner we need to intervene uh, and also, hopefully, for risk factors. The problem with the GOG244, for, for whatever reason, the normal risk fa other risk factors that we have associated with lymphedema, such as the use of radiation therapy and a few other, and obesity, didn't seem to be correlated with lymphedema on the objective measurements in GOG244 for some reason. So, there could be a lot of reasons for this, but it's, it is interesting that this is a prospective study that does not show an association with the other risk factors that we've thought and have been reported to cause lymphedema in the past. Yeah, so my uh, my interest now is on the specific uh, disease sites, and and beginning with, for example, with cervical cancer, um, you know, obviously radical hysterectomy, radical trachelectomy, and the impact of sentinel lymph node mapping. Uh, first, I mean, is there any data as to whether the difference uh, is there any difference between rad radical hysterectomy, radical trachelectomy, and the rate of lymphedema, and has sentinel lymph node mapping brought an impact into this morbidity in cervical cancer? Yeah, so just looking at radical hysterectomy and radical uh, trachelectomy, the, the rates of lymphedema that have been reported seem to be similar within the same range. So if you look at some studies, the rate of lymphedema after trachelectomy is reported 25 to 30%. 
the range for radical hysterectomy goes anywhere from 10% to 40 to 50%. And really, this is all patients who also have undergone lymphadenectomy in these studies. So it really isn't uh, a difference between the, the radical hysterectomy or trachelectomy. It's the fact that both of these patients' groups are undergoing lymphadenectomy at the same time also, at least traditionally. Now, we all know about central lymph node mapping. Of course, we're not specifically talking about that today, but, you know, there there's definitely reason to think that central lymph node mapping will reduce the risk of lymphedema because we've seen this in the breast cancer world. Now, lower extremity lymphedema is different from upper extremity, one, because of gravity, and there's more pressure and weight on the legs on the lower extremity than on the upper arms. So we can't necessarily extrapolate from the breast cancer literature, but it is uh, a, a message to us that central lymph node mapping reduces lymphedema there. So it is goes well within reason to think that doing the same thing for our cancers would also reduce the risk. And in fact, if you look at the studies, there's very few, you know, sent to call, which is a prospective study assessing the accuracy of central node mapping and cervix cancer run, uh, from France that actually uh, tried to assess lymphedema rates comparing those who had only central node mapping versus lymphadenectomy, and there was a significant difference of, of 2% after central node mapping compared to nearly 20% after lymphadenectomy. I think these rates are low because if you look at the way it was assessed, it was based on whether a, a physical therapist diagnosed lymphedema, which is kind of a little bit subjective. Um, so, again, there is some suggestion in, in cervix cancer that doing central lymph node mapping is um, associated with a significantly lower rate of developing lymphedema in the future. I don't think it's been answered properly yet, and actually we're about to start and sort of redo the same study we did in our urine cancer population in our cervical and vulvar cancer population using patient-reported outcomes. Listen, now on the, uh, on the subject of the endometrial cancer, obviously the most common that we see, uh, and you recently published a study comparing lower extremity lymphedema in patients who underwent just uh, sentinel lymph node mapping versus a complete lymphadenectomy. Uh, what did you find specifically in that study? Yeah, so we uh, <clears throat> used a, a, a validated uh, patient-reported um, outcome tool for lower extremity lymphedema developed by our friends at the Mayo Clinic, um, which they have validated and then tested it in their population of patients undergoing surgery for uterine cancer. So we work with them uh, to use the same questionnaire. So it's a 13-item, so there's 13 questions, um, which has been validated to be associated with the presence of lymphedema. And we queried uh, and sent this out. It also included, the questionnaire also then included um, quality of life questions using EORTC C30 and, uh, and EN24, which is uh, one is a general uh, quality of life for general cancer patients and then one specific to endometrial cancer. So we sent out this large questionnaire to our, pay, uh, our database of patients who had undergone surgery at our institution for uterine cancer over a certain time period. Now, of course, this is retrospective, and you know we wanted patients to at least have two years of follow-up since being since having their surgery to have some time for follow-up. So we can't tell you when the, the lymphedema occurred, and really, we're not looking at we weren't looking at incidents, but this is just the first start to see what the prevalence was of lower extremity patient reported lower extremity lymphedema. And we also have patients in our cohort who had undergone central low mapping only or lymphadenectomy. Uh, and that was the primary question was, is there a difference between patient-reported, the prevalence of patient-reported low extremity lymphedema between patients at our institution who had undergone central lymph node mapping or uh, your typical comprehensive traditional lymphadenectomy, if you will. 
Um, we had a you know a fifty approximately fifty percent response rate from all the eligible patients, which is decent. Some may say not high enough, but you know pretty decent for a questionnaire based study. And what we found is that the rate of the patient the prevalence of patient reporting to DMA was significantly different between the two groups. And forty one percent of women who had undergone lymphadenectomy at our institution had a positive um, um, thirteen item screen for lower extremity lymphedema compared to only 27% in those that undergone a central lymph node mapping only. Now, you might say 27% seems high, and I think that, you know, this actually is probably more real than what's been reported before because we all will develop some lymphedema as we age. And this is a group of women who are a little older and many years after the surgery. Sorry. <clears throat> so it's actually not unexpected to have a 27% rate of lymphedema in the central lymph node group. That actually just probably reflects... Mm-hmm. normal aging and other processes. And so using the same, and, and the, the study, the point of study is not to focus too much on the exact numbers, but to sh- that using the same tool validated, mm-hmm. it found a huge difference between the two. So that lymphadenectomy contributed to the development of, of lower extremity lymphedema in nearly 20% of patients is how we interpret this in the, uh, within our study and in the context of others that have been done. Yeah, no, it's a very good study. Um, and and uh, Mario, you know, I think that uh, I know the answer to this question, but, you know, in ovarian cancer, we rarely, if ever, discuss lymphedema in our preoperative consent process. Uh, does you know Is this an issue for ovarian cancer patients? Yeah. It's the problem with ovarian cancer. It depends. If it's an early-stage ovarian cancer we're talking about and you're doing a lymphadenectomy or it's an advanced-stage ovarian cancer patient that we're treating, the problem with ovarian cancers, you know, a lot of them have very low albumin, and hypoalbuminemia is a known risk factor for lymphedema. So it is a problem, absolutely is a problem in patients with ovarian cancer. Uh, it's a little hard to discern is it our treatments or the underlying malignancy, especially in the advanced cases, that is the cause of lymphedema and how much more we're contributing to this um, development of lymphedema. But I think lymphedema is an absolute problem in patients who are diagnosed with, newly diagnosed with ovarian cancer, and that's for the underlying malignancy issues. And I think in women who are undergoing ovarian cancer and with the extensive staging lymphadenectomy up to the renal veins, your, your, your typical sort of the leftover situation where you're still doing routine lymphadenectomies. Right. I have patients myself who have done this, and they have lymphedema in ovarian cancer. That's stage one clear cell cancer, stage one this or that other ovarian cancer. We did full lymphadenectomy to the renals, 60, 100 nodes. You know, we bump our chest how great we are as surgeons <laughs> and and now I have patients who are struggling with, with lymphedema from that and are right. cured 10, 15 years later. So I think we really have to think about this. In, in, in ovarian cancer, it absolutely is a problem. And it's, more, it's actually more multifactorial there, if you will. But it's something that has completely been ignored to date. And, you know, that, that's, that's on our list of the next things you want to look at. So, Mary, you know, when we look at all of these risk factors, um, I think obviously one question that comes up is um, how do we prevent this from happening or how do we minimize the likelihood that this, this will happen? Yeah. <clears throat> I mean, I think there's a lot of reasons also, you know, underlying patient factors such as obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome has also been associated with lymphedema. So obviously optimizing patient health is, is key, uh, key part prevention, which it, but it's very difficult to do. You know, weight loss isn't so easy. But it is something to consider uh, in the overall prevention package, if you will. And, of course, as geo-oncologists, we really have to think serious and think hard about the interventions we're doing to our patients. So the best way 
to manage lymphedema is to absolutely prevent it. And the ways to prevent it is optimizing patient health, as I mentioned, but also really moving to techniques that we know reduce that risk significantly, such as you know, replacing full lymphadenectomies with central lymph node mapping as much as possible, avoiding additional radiation therapies, and even chemotherapy has been associated with the possible development of lymphedema. So I think it, we really need to stop and think about uh, the surgeries we're doing to patients, but also the adjuvant therapies that we're recommending. We really have to, to say to ourselves, are we really going to make a difference in the patient's survival and at the same time not impact adversely their quality of life? Right. And, and um, obviously, when, when that t- time comes in for most G1 oncologists, it has that you actually have a patient in front of you. And, and obviously, it's uh, this sort of sense of helplessness. Uh, and the patient says, you know, doctor, so now that I have it, what are we going to do about it? So wh- what are some of the strategies on actually treating lymphedema? Yeah, so there's a few strategies. There's also, I, I, for prevention, there's... Um, it's unclear whether preventative interventions reduce that risk. For upper extremity, there's been some studies that have looked at, you know, um, preventative physical therapy and massage and compression garments, and, and, and some studies suggest that for upper extremity, at least that that would reduce the development of lymphedema. But we don't have any uh, data specific to lower extremity to know that preventative measures, once you've done your lymphadenectomy or radiation therapy, uh, whether that really reduces the development of lymphedema. Um, I think the key to also treatment is early detection of lymphedema. If you wait until they have this huge leg that's pitting with that peau d'orange kind of a appearance and, and, and there's an ulcer, I think you, it's too late. Um, I think if you want to try to prevent it, it's with early detection. So it really requires asking patients and looking at their legs uh, every time you see them and asking them about their lymphedema symptoms. And you can use the 13-item questionnaire we use from the Mayo Clinic, there's the GCLQ now that you can consider using. Now, you can use this on a clinical basis, but we've never looked at that in a, in a prospective way to say that by doing that and intervening earlier, are we making an impact? It definitely makes sense. And if you talk to our plastic surgeons who are doing some pretty neat procedures or offering some things, uh, it really, um, to them, it's early detection that matters most. Um, so that's key. Uh, and then once you detect it, you know, the most First thing you, you, you often do, first you make sure there's no DVT, obviously. Um, and then after that, there's um, physical therapy uh, with um, massage and manual compression. does help and does work and mitigates the lymphedema in many cases. It doesn't, a lot of times, prevent it from getting worse, but it can. So that's usually the first step. Um, as things get worse, uh, it gets a little harder. There's some debate as to whether doing surgical interventions earlier on prevents the development of later stages lymphedema. We do have uh, our plastic surgeons here that we work with who ask us to send patients to them as soon as we think there's any signal of a lymphedema developing because they feel that their surgical interventions that they offer can get the best results if done early. We can go over that in a little bit. Um, so that's really where we are with the uh, treatment of lymphedema. It's still going back to the old-fashioned physical therapy and compression stockings. Um, there's been some studies looking at medical interventions, specifically anti-inflammatory interventions and mm-hmm. T-cell target interventions. They really haven't been as exciting the results as we thought they would be. So really, currently, there is no medical medicine drug therapy that we know of that works well. 
Right. And and you did mention the uh, the impact of the plastic surgery, um, colleagues. So I, I do see that a, a number of patients recently ask about this uh, lymphovenous bypass. Uh, are you familiar with this and, and how how successful this is? Yeah. Again, <clears throat> this, there there's a, there's microsurgical and this, uh, and surgical interventions that, that 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 are out there. We do offer them here. Um, most of the literature is on the upper extremity, and in retrospective, there's really no prospective assessment of any of these interventions. And so, you know, in the retrospective studies, they're very enthusiastic, saying that 80% or higher of patients who underwent these procedures had improvement in symptoms, objective reduction in limb volume, but it's not 100%. None of these things really completely eliminate lymphedema. What some of these procedures are to treat lymphedema is there's a few. Uh, one, you can sort of anastomose lymphatics into the venous system, thereby sort of creating a bypass of lymphatic flow, bypassing the air that was scarred from your treatments or surgery. Uh, you can actually uh, bring in lymph node tissue from elsewhere. Mm. And basically, it's not just placing it in the air. You actually have to anastomose the blood supply to the local blood supply, with the idea being as these lymph nodes, um, you know, if it works and is vascularized and over time, with the lymphangiogenic system, these lymph nodes actually pick up the lymphatics, the local lymphatics, and then you have a, sort of a new lymphatic path. Um, those are the theories behind this. And, and again, these are all microsurgical techniques, which I need my plastic surgeons to help. Um, they take lymph nodes from other areas, and sometimes it's, uh, it doesn't make sense, but they've actually placed it in the ankle in some, in some of my patients. Um, the idea being that just the lymphangiogenic system will affect the whole lymphatics up the leg. I don't understand that as well, but I'm not the expert there. <laughs> um, and what we've actually started to move to, to be honest with you, especially for our vulvar cancer patients that we're still doing occasional lymphadenectomy, it's usually after those who have central node metastasis that we take them back. I actually coordinate with our plastic surgeon, and we've been doing preventative omental transfers into the groin. It's a really neat procedure. They harvest a piece of omentum, um, you know, unfortunately, they don't do MIS, so they do a, little, a laparotomy incision to get to the <laughs> piece of momentum out. But, um, and then they take that with the blood supply, the gastropoploic uh, blood supply, and they actually take that and anastomose it to the groin vessels. Usually they prefer the inferior epigastric, and so they ask us to try to maintain that. So we're actually doing this vascular dissection. We're doing our node dissection. And, uh, and if that's not available, they'll actually sometimes uh, either uh, anastomose it to the saphenous or even the femoral vein, and it's a pretty neat procedure. Hmm. Um, and, you know, the idea is that the omentum has, you know, lymph nodes to take a packet of uh, omentum and, and it relies on the omental lymph nodes to sort of restore lymphatic flow and prevent the development of lymphedema. Again, there's some promising uh, results from the upper extremity, but for us, this is relatively new in the lower extremity, so I can't even tell you what the success has been. I've had a few patients we've done this on already. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very early. None of them have lymphedema yet, but, you know, we haven't really followed them for, for long enough yet to know. Right, right, right. So, Mary... And it's actually, a, it actually does uh, increase the, the surgery, though, because these are these things that it's microsurgical procedures. Right. I mean, you do these mental transfers preventatively. I mean, again, we have to think about what we're doing, of course, and we are closely thinking, letting our patients know that we don't really know what the exact outcome will be. We think it makes sense. And, you know, you're talking, it's an extra two hours of surgery. That's, you know, what it takes to do this, and... You know, additional risks, of course, and if the uh, the transfer or the anastomosis doesn't work, then you have a piece of necrotic momentum in the groin, mm-hmm. and, and that could be a problem. So, right. you know, these things, even though we're just briefly mentioning them, 
It, it, it is a lot of counseling of our patients and discussing the pluses and minuses and what we do know or don't know um, as we help them try to make these decisions. So, Mary, it's been a pleasure speaking with you about this. Always, obviously, a, a great opportunity. I learned a tremendous amount from speaking with you. Uh, any additional comments you would have for our audience? No, I think we have to – what I've learned from doing all this work is, well, we're going to continue our work in other areas, and, 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 and we're thinking of some prospective things that we can look at and to try to really make a difference here. But uh, I really just now realize that we have to think about what we do to our patients and our goal and as surgeons, especially for mostly what you're doing in surgeries, you know, really trying to find ways to minimize the long-term complications of what we do. We never really pay attention to that. I mean, as a fellow, I'm sure you're just – you can remember this. No one ever thought lymphedema was a problem. I had to take 100 nodes. You're such a great human oncologist. <laughs> and, and no one ever said, oh, lymphedema doesn't happen, right? Remember those days? <laughs> I think we need to, to really stop and think about what we're doing to patients and, and with both our, with our surgeries as well as what, with, with adjuvant therapies. And you know, I think we have to have more than just a few months of PFS to give radiation therapy to some of our patients because we are curing these patients with endometrial cancer especially and cervical cancer. It's a high cure rate with what we do for them. And, and then they have these problems that really manifest and can cause significant distress in the future. So that, the last thing is just we all have to just stop and think about what we're doing, not from just a short-term outcome, but a long-term outcome also. Mario, thank you very, very much. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you, Pedro.